opinion on that. I think it's important development. No, you're totally right. Uh, Turkey is, uh, is doing right now what he should do. And I think that uh, with that uh, talks with Turkey that they were a bit, uh, yeah, I see it as a little child uh, <laughs> stamping his feet because he didn't get his, uh, his way. But uh, at the end, the European Union did get their way. They, uh, they have a way to uh, handle with, uh, with uh, Erdogan and Turkey. Uh, Nina. No. Oh, sorry, Nina. Uh, Leon. It's Leonard, Kevin, and uh, Nina. Exactly. Okay, thank you, John. Uh, I just had a, a quick question for uh, for M. If he's still on the panel, I'm not sure, but it was with specific reference to uh, to the goings on uh, in and around Syria, and uh, we've we've had some. Uh, information or uh, data that, that uh, came out of the Syrian uh, sector, and specifically with reference to the the Russians withdrawing uh, certain force capabilities and uh, perhaps various assets and, and so on. And I haven't heard any, anything further in that reference at all. And uh, I know M obviously is is closer to the. Uh, has much closer eyes on the situation than uh, than we do, for example, in uh, in North America. And I just wondered if he had any light that he could shed upon upon uh, those goings on, and with uh, specific reference to any impacts that may be happening or that he may have observed with with regard to the Ukrainian theater. Uh, thank you. Uh, so M dropped off the panel, unfortunately. So um, unless he comes, uh, hopefully he can come back. Uh, he's not, listening. He's uh, so listening. Okay, yeah, yeah, I think he's he's still listening. Uh, M, if you want to come back up and take a shot at this, please feel free to do so. Um, I can kind of give you a little bit of background on it um, to the best of my ability. So there were, you are 100% correct, there were reports about a month or so ago, um, uh, maybe a little bit further back that... Russia had pulled either the entirety or at least a very large portion of its uh, contingent that was deployed in Syria back, uh, you know, to Russia for deployment uh, in Ukraine. Um, I don't think the, based upon some reports that I saw, I don't think the entire contingent was pulled out because I, because after that was an announcement was made a few weeks later, there were still reports of, you know, uh, Russian uh, aviation, fixed-wing aviation, bombing various places in Syria. So I still think they have some assets currently deployed there, but there was some, you know, there were reports and some evidence that they did pull a significant uh, percentage of them back to Russia. Um, they did it by plane, I believe, because I don't think they could get them through the Bosphorus. Um, I believe under the terms of Montreux, I think transporting them might have potentially been problematic. Um, so I believe they flew them by plane. It was a long flight because Turkey, Turkish airspace is closed to a Russian military flight. So they had to fly over Iran, then fly over the Caspian Sea around Azerbaijan, then back into Russia. The thing to re realize there is that because they traveled by plane, their ability to transport their heavy equipment back out of Syria or from Syria back to Russia is limited. Um, they might have been able to transport some of it in the interim, 
but it's more difficult and time consuming uh, to transport heavy equipment, you know, such as air defense systems, tanks and other vehicles uh, via plane than via ship. So even if they pulled the people back, a lot of their heavier equipment is, I suspect, is probably still in Syria. Um, and I don't think they pulled everybody out. I, th- I think they at least still have some fixed wing aviation assets in Syria and presumably with those ground crews and other necessary logistical you know, and support equipment for those. Uh, right. That certainly helps. Uh, thank you, John. Not a problem. And I should also myself wasn't overly large to begin with. I think it was like sub 5,000. I think it wasn't a particularly large number. It's probably not going to make a difference in the grand scale of things anyway, even if they could get their heavy equipment out. Um, let's go to uh, Kev and then Nina. Oh, uh, hi, guys. I'm um, really glad that uh, Twitter is back online. And um, hello to everyone. Um, I, I, I just wanted to go off on a tiny tangent and, and, and just think about how we arrived here uh, and just if we can all think about um, a little bit of the history of the past 20 years, um, this is no surprise. Um, and we have to look at a couple of facts. Um, since before 2014, um, the UK and the US has been training the uh, Ukrainian forces. Um, if it wasn't for that, then Putin and his gamble would have won. Um, and Ukraine would have been now a Russian vassal state. So we saw this coming. We saw it coming because of what happened in Syria. And we saw it coming because of what happened in Georgia. And we saw it coming because of what happened ever since Putin came to power. He has no value on human life whatsoever. He is quite prepared to devastate cities. He's quite prepared to just pound entire towns into nothingness and they do learn um the first time they went into georgia with just tanks they got blown to bits um then they did tanks and infantry um they did a little bit better um after gulf war ii the west was not having quite the appetite for getting involved in geopolitics and war um so we kind of backed off and what happened well syria happened um, they used chemical weapons. We did not respond to that. That was a red line. It's, it's always been a red line for the West. Any chemical weapons is an instant response. And the UK Parliament said, oh, well, you know, last time you said that there was weapons of mass. Yeah, I think we lost Gav. Um, yeah, it's, uh, there is some good point in that essentially Russia was salivating upon this for many years. Unfortunate reality is that the invasion was long in the planning. We know about Tuzla incident, the Tuzla Island, which happened even, you know, prior to the 2013, when Russia was attempting to capture an island in the Kert Strait, where right now the bridge is. And uh, they they planned the operation in 2013, and they backstepped the country when, uh, when the executive branch was merely... Uh, non-existent, and then they injected their special forces into the east of Ukraine to to start the war in there. So that started from from those times, and the war was on for eight years. Um, it's also unfortunate that we kind of it it shifted into the background for everyone, and right now it got reinvigorated just because Russia was essentially planning to do so for so many years. 
let's head back to you, Finance and John. Hey, Walter, uh, while, while I have you here, can I ask you a couple questions? Absolutely, should. Um, uh, since we're we're discussing raising money for tourniquets and aid, and you're a doctor, can you tell us a little bit about the medical value of a tourniquet in a uh, combat situation? Yeah, absolutely. So, tourniquet is uh, not an expensive piece of equipment. It costs around thirty dollars which is obviously a decent, good tourniquet. Uh, the number one preferable tourniquet is CAT or CAT. This is specifically the one that we are trying to raise money for, raise donations for. We're trying to procure 1,000 tourniquets for Ukrainians, for Ukrainian defenders and Ukrainian civilians. When someone is wounded into his extremity or her extremity and uh, there is a severe hemorrhage, um, tourniquet and a good tourniquet, reliable tourniquet, like CAT or SLF tourniquet, has a, often a difference between life and death of a civilian who ended up under Russian rocket attack or Ukrainian defender who is or combat medic who is applying a tourniquet to a soldier. So it's crucial. Every individual first aid kit has to have one, at least one. Usually, actually, they have two because of the types of the of the injuries and multiple shrapnel wounds, and therefore multiple wounds and uh, points of hemorrhage and different extremities. So it is crucial. It is like uh, one of the staple things going to individual first aid kit. And uh, it essentially uh, makes the survivability of a soldier or civilian possible prior to him being delivered to uh, to a place where... Uh, medical care is or specialized medical care is available again we're trying to raise money for 1000 cat tourniquets they're, they're the best option for uh, uh, individual first aid kit the next be best option is sof tourniquets they have some uh, special somewhat of an issue because uh, they require at least two people to administer those, they are somewhat challenging to be administered on oneself. So therefore, if you have SOF, it's an excellent tourniquet, but you can administer it ideally on someone else. If you have CAT or CAT tourniquet, it's the best option to administer it on yourself. There is no problem with that. So that's why we are raising money and donations for essentially 1,000 of those. And this is literally potential 1,000 human lives safe. This is not the first time we're doing it. We already procured about 1,100 of tourniquets prior to, to this uh, fundraising event. And right now it's uh, like the second push. We had Ukrainian combat medics from hospitalers on this channel. They emphasized the importance of this of this contraption of the uh, of the good tourniquet. And uh, yeah, it's, it's something as little as $30. It's often the difference for... between life and death. Something as little as $30 is the difference between life and death. And it's just, you know, a couple of coffees or two beers or whatever. And uh, we can make this difference. We can contribute. If you did already contribute, please spread the word. If you cannot, like, financially help or contribute, uh, it's also important, basically, to, to spread the word and uh, let everyone know that uh, the work continues and... Uh, People are being killed in Ukraine every single day. And uh, this little thing that we're doing actually makes a big difference for people on the ground. And uh, again, something as little as $30 CAT or CAT tourniquet is, uh, is crucial. And uh, 
and saves a life. So we have the option to save some lives together. Please contribute, please donate, please spread the word. Again, it's important, and uh, I believe it's a good cause, to say the least. Thank you, Walter. Let's uh, move back to their scheduled programming. $30 buys a Ukrainian a tourniquet. I would say Ukrainian soldier, except that Russia seems to hit non-military targets every day, so it's really just a Ukrainian, because civilians are being hit every bit as quickly as soldiers are, it seems, at this point. Jacob, your hand is raised, sir. Thanks, finance. Uh, Walter, I was hoping that you're still listening. I was curious, um, not to take attention away from the tourniquets, which are obviously an important fundraising goal for Maria Aid. I'm curious, I've heard it, we'd heard in recent years about inventions that were meant to revolutionize wound care on the battlefield. Uh, I recall specifically some invention that was almost like a uh, absorbent balls or clotting agents that you would stuff into a wound. I- I'm curious, I- I'm just wondering whether from a physician's perspective, you know anything about this, if it's seeing any usage um, in Ukraine, if it's saving lives, or if that was just something that didn't turn into anything or it's not available yet. Oh, Walter, are you there? Our, our host appears to have walked off for the moment. I'm sure he will be back to ask questions too. You have a non-Walter question. We will try to get him back when we can. Okay, in that case, I believe, uh, I believe Port- we had Portland on the other day, and uh, I believe he has a background in combat medicine with the Royal, uh, with, with the British Army. And I believe he had made reference to a couple of different types of bandages um, that do contain, you know, clotting agents and, you know, similar, some such. Um, so they are in use by Western militaries. Um, and they're also, I believe, available for civilian purchase um, through various means. I don't know how widespread they are in uh, Ukrainian armed forces or for, you know, Ukrainian emergency, you know, first responders and emergency personnel. That's totally outside my wheelhouse, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, they, they do exist and I presume they do help because we use them in the West. I just don't know what the availability in Ukraine is. Uh, please go ahead, Jacob. We have a follow-up to that. Hey, John, not, not, so, not necessarily follow-up. I think I appreciate your collaboration. Yeah, I'll look into it. I was just curious. Uh, what I, uh, I saw a tweet from the Walsh Report about the story of a family uh, escape from Kherson, I think, uh, supposed to be today at 12 PM. Did, is that rescheduled or did I miss, is it a different day? Uh, give me one minute to check the uh, account real quick. And, and while you're checking, I'll just say for everyone listening, um, Twitter this morning seemed to have an awful lot of uh, good news, some bad news, but some good news about uh, strikes that may be advantageous to Ukraine. Don't know whether or not they're all carried out by Ukraine. I guess we're still waiting to see. But uh, how about those high marks? Huh? Yeah, it's, uh, I believe, Melitopol, Belgorod, and Kurskral hit. Um, overnight, Melitopol looks to be high Mars and uh, just sabotaged by on-the-ground assets. Uh, Belgorod, it's unclear, pot- potentially a Tochka U. Um, we were thinking that it was something else last night, but some photos just based upon some uh, rough math that was done based upon some video and you know trying to estimate the terminal descent velocity, but we now have some images out that indicate it was probably a Tochka. That being said, it looks like uh, the Russian air defense in attempting to intercept the the missiles did more damage to their own city than the uh, Ukrainian strike actually did. Um, It looks like a a number of houses and other uh, areas uh, were damaged by uh, essentially uh, were damaged by the Russians themselves by their own interceptors, essentially fragmenting and landing on people's houses. Um, So fun day to be a Russian civilian. And in Kursk, it's unclear. Some uh, 
claimed photography was released. I say claimed because it was released by the Russian regional government there um, of a crashed, um, what appeared to be a TU-141. Uh, that's what I think it looks like based upon the image that I saw. Um, I don't know if that was just a repurposed picture or if um, that's actually legitimate, but that was definitely a crash T-141 in the picture. So it could have been Ukrainian aerial reconnaissance or um, Ukrainians have also used the T-141s uh, as uh, essentially loitering munitions packed with explosives. So that's also another possibility there. Nina, your hand is up. Yes, thank you. Um... Can I change the topic a little bit? Because I had a really interesting meeting today uh, with an old friend of mine who is an uh, Iraqi, but he's lived in Finland since 2015. And uh, uh, this topic would be a little bit about what Ivana told about the uh, Russian propaganda uh, last night, if I may, if it's okay for you. And... Uh, uh, if uh, if that's okay, I will uh, like ask you to uh, pull pull this person up uh, when he requests the mic. And I can see that M has uh, his hand up. But uh, yeah, uh, if you may, I will do this. Thank you. M, uh, thank you. And thank you, Nina. M, can you hear us? Loud and clear. I believe there was a question about Syria. Yes, Leonard had asked a question about the uh, the Russian contingent in Syria, and if you had any new info on them, um, I gave a brief rundown of the, some of the initial reports that we had seen that they withdrew. Um, you know, I kind of gave some background on that, um, and then also referenced the fact that some airstrikes have occurred since then, so they've obviously left some portion of their forces behind. So any in ex additional info you have would be very appreciated. The Russian garrison in Syria right now is trying to prevent the Turks from establishing a buffer zone and expanding further into northern Syria. That's their mission there right now. I've seen a couple of activities, but, you know, it's more or less same, same, but different. Nothing has changed on the northern Syrian front. Uh, Leonard, if you have a follow-up for that, please go ahead. Uh, yes, uh, thank you, John. So, uh, just to, to step one step further beyond that, I'm just wondering, M, if you have any insight or thoughts in terms of what uh, what impact that may have upon, I guess, so-called Turkish-Syrian relations, uh, and even more specifically, um, what what uh, that may throw into the mix as far as the Turkish-Russian uh, scenario, which seems to be a bit of a bumpy road from from uh, from my perspectives. But uh, do you see any significant changes in that regard? Uh, thank you. As far as the current Syrian government is concerned, what happened in Syria was uh, a hostile intelligence service funded uprising against the uh, Alawit regime in Syria. The Alawit or a Shia Alawiya or a Shia sect that controls Syria. They control most of the business interests and they control most of the government. The way the Syrian government under Bashar al-Assad dealt or dealt with this was by releasing Sunni jihadis from prisons to hijack the peaceful uprising against them and turn it into an insurgency. And then they invited the Iranians, because they are Shiite as well, the current uh, Iranian government is a 12 
Shiat, which is another sect in the Shiat, uh, in Shiat Islam. So they brought in the Twelvers, and the Twelvers started this holy war against the uh, the Sunnis. The various factions of Sunni jihadis operating in Syria are well documented, and it's uh, beyond the scope of this space. And it's a quite uh, expensive to discuss. Then when the Iranians got too much of a foothold in Syria, the Syrian government invited the Russians right after what happened in Maidan and Ukraine. As per international law, as per the defense treaties they have signed with the current government of the Russian Federation. The whole purpose of this was to prevent the Sunni-funded jihadis from establishing a land bridge that would enable a pipeline, a gas pipeline, to reach the Mediterranean. And then when the Iranians came in, they also wanted to establish a land bridge to extend another gas pipeline that goes through the Shiite regions in Iraq, or the Shiite-controlled regions in Iraq. Now, current Turkish government believes in a pan-Islamist version of the Middle East, where they can revive a new Ottoman Empire, or a federation of Islamic states modeled after the EU, but deriving their mandate to power and their mandate to authority from religious authority over their populations, which are mostly Sunnis. When this proxy war resulted in a stalemate, the Turks realized that they needed to establish a buffer zone between their borders and the Syrian borders in order to crack down on the Kurds operating in Syria and operating in Iraq and so on and so forth. Uh, This is a regional conflict. It has its dynamics rooted in uh, global geopolitics and global international relationships, and it's connected to the war in Ukraine in a way. But the current tensions on the front between Turkey and Syria, as well as the Russian involvement in Syria, uh, are not that, uh, what's the proper term? They're not that relevant to uh, what's happening in Ukraine right now. It's more of regional players and regional tools trying to seize the political opportunity of the political and the military validity to achieve as many political and as many military uh, objectives they can achieve. So it's not quite related to what's happening in Ukraine right now. Okay, thank you, Anna. That sheds a a lot of light on obviously a fairly complex uh, situation. Thank you. My pleasure, sir. Uh, MP, please go ahead. Yeah, thanks, everybody. And... uh... Thanks, M. You know, coming to coming to channel. You know, all of us go to Egypt. I get actually sick, so uh, I really appreciate actually your comments. You know, you have a super super good comments, and you stay with uh, stay with our side. I've been diving in the Hurkara, all these places, and you know, seeing these places. Yeah. Thanks, thanks, Steve. Thank you, sir. Uh, Leif, welcome to the panel. Uh, you just got up here, then Nina, then Jay. Uh, sorry, can I just uh, make a short introduction? Leif is the, the Iraqi I have known now for, since 2015, uh, and we were talking about the Russian propaganda because Ivana was talking about it yesterday, and I asked Leif about how this uh, has affected uh, Iraq, uh, the propaganda and he looks at it from Finland. Thank you. Late, just uh, push the, yeah. Thank you, Nina, for writing me. So 
First things, I want to say that sorry for what's happening in Ukraine right now. Uh, note any normal human can accept what's happening right now and this kind of decision. So let's go straight to the Nina question. So in Iraq, there is some different situation, maybe uh, not so much people they hurt about. Uh, there is many groups in Kurdistan, for example, in the South Iraq, they uh, against Russian because Kurdish party and uh, workers party there they are against what they what they do so they don't believe what russians say at all it's like naturally what they say and there are so such two different things between arab not kurdish um uh, exactly or especially the 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 muslims so there is two groups in uh in muslim sunni group and shia group so the shia group they believe what Russia do, even if it's not truth. Uh, doesn't matter what Russian public, because Shia with Iran, the militias lawyered it's with Iran. So Iran with Russia, like they are really good friends to uh, sell weapons and to make some deals and so on. But uh, Sunni, it's again uh, Russian, let's say, in every under any decision because it's uh, far away from the interest and because Russian attacked Syria a lot and they pumped them buildings and so on so it's really miserable but uh, yeah so in Iraq there is not so much people they believe what Russian do you yeah. qualify the United Arab Emirates government as Sunni or Shia uh, sorry could you repeat again I didn't hear you do you qualify the United Arab Emirates government as Sunni or Shia? Uh, could you be specific with your question? Because I didn't get you. Do you qualify yeah. the current monarch or the current monarchy in the United uh, Arab Emirates as Sunni or Shia? Sunni. Do you see their interests aligned with Russia or against Russia? Not well, against Russia. Sunni. There you go. So, so... Sunni almost the problem that in Iraq the situation too different. Let's say Shia people with Russian Sunni against Russian like that. Just in Iraq, I'm 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 quite well aware of the situation in Iraq. Our ambassador was assassinated in Iraq, so I know exactly what's happening in Iraq. But MP, sorry, M, you know it was a Finnish guy who answered the question. Thanks. So, for instance, uh, yeah, sure, Nina. Hang on. So, for instance, uh, the tribal Sunni uprising in Iraq, which was funded by certain Gulf governments or certain factions of Gulf governments, and also some of the Shiite uh, paramilitary organizations operating in Iraq being funded by Iran. How do you see this? Well, to be so honest with you, what you see about our government right now, it's just show. Because I can be very clear to say and very sure, like let's say 100%, that Iran is control whole Iraq. And there is no one step Iraqi can do without Iran permission. That's like some fact. I don't know how you will get it, but that's the fact. And if I can look at it, you know, I'm hosting one Iraqi police officer from Baghdad, his family in Finland. So 
be a bit better thing. Well, while I do appreciate the discussion, and I don't think it is not germane, I would like to close it up with one last comment if anyone has it and try to move back closer to uh, a discussion more directly tied to Ukraine. Uh, so if anyone has a final comment, uh, I would appreciate if anyone has something to ask directly in Ukraine. A number of different interesting topics on the subject. Uh, Yuha, you have your hand raised. Yeah. I actually have before Yuha. Sure. What I say, Slava Ukraine. I'm, I'm with Roman. I have dedicated money for Miriam Aid. I'm with Yuha as well. Uh, Slava Ukraine. Everybody heroes. Thank you. Yuha. Yeah, I, I I would have been interested here just because uh, it's unclear to me uh, the differences between if we talk about Russian Russian uh, information warfare, that how can it be that it is uh, getting how to say uh, achieving something in one part of the population and one part not if it's so clearly divided by by Sunni or Shia, and I, that would have been discussion which I'd be interested in because uh, uh, how would I say uh, we need to understand the tactics and the, the func- how the Russian propaganda machine works and what kind of uh, effect it has in different populations in order to do something against it. That, that's why I think this discussion would have, or would have been or would be also relevant in this Ukrainian context. Thank you. Uh, sorry, uh, did uh, late uh, just uh drop down by self or did you drop him down i would have wanted you had to to ask him thank you uh, i did not drop him yeah he, he seemed to have dropped himself he's asking to come back he also may have been dropped by twitter because it's that kind of day it's a glitchy day indeed yeah hi hi now you're back please uh just uh, i don't know if you heard my question or just uh what where do you see the reasons why uh, russian propaganda is uh, achieving or, or accessing some part of the population and why not? Is it just the, the political, uh, like uh, likes and dislikes, or is there some kind of different approach which the how the Russian uh, propaganda is pro- uh, sort of brought to the people? Or do, do every, does everyone get the same information and use the same information sources? Or how can it be that Sunni and, and Shia have so different uh, opinions? Nice to see you, by the way. Long time ago. <laughs> Years. I'm glad that you're in Finland. Thanks. All right. So it's so clear to say that the propaganda is something that it's linking with faith for people. But I would like to make it so soft to answer your question, sir. So it's conflict conflict between uh, Arab, let's say, Russia support, like especially the Muslims. So from one side... Or like, yeah, one side, let's say 90% of militia support, it's from Russia. Even like if you make some research for them weapons, what they use, which kind of like a strategy they use, like all these things, you will just see it clearly it's from Russia. And they public these things, it's just clear. Even if you see some militias, they like put, put in uh, pictures in them streets. So... It's like such faith, what, uh, what's going on with them, like in their mind. It doesn't matter the propaganda, maybe it's work in Europe more, but it's like what Putin say, let's say if, if tomorrow we'll say that all Shia 
militia should kill most Muslim Sunni because they are something. They will do it. It's because this kind of way what Russian makes since long time, it's very clear and near to the old ideas with religions, like with Muslims especially. Okay, so, so basically, yeah. basically they have bought with weapons the credibility of their claims. That they, because Russia delivers them weapons and supports them in any way, then they accept anything Russia says, pretty much. Uh, right? This is this is one one of the things. One of the things, and the second thing that it's because Russia supports Iran a lot, and Iran for Shia people who lives in Iraq, it's something more than important than Baghdad. So just imagine through that. Yeah, but but Sunni bars like the normal people and the politician and in the army, wherever where they be in Iraq, they are again. I don't know, like other reasons, but one of the reasons that because, like they are against Shia and against Iran and against everything who support, let's say, uh, the the Shia side. And by the way, I am atheist person to make the things clear that. I'm not beside some bots, and I'm against any barbarian way to to uh, to act in this life. So thank you. Thank you very much. Good answers. Thank. You. Just for the record, we are expecting a family from Kherson, South Ukraine, Russian-occupied Kherson. Um, a family will join us from that city. They escaped from Russian occupation. They will share some experiences with us. About the ordeal and uh, what Russian invaders actually do to Ukrainian civilians in uh, in Russian occupation. So we we are undergoing some technical difficulties trying to establish connection with them. Right now they're in safety, gladly. Um, just trying to basically get them Multiple. online and uh, get them in the space. Thank. You. Uh, in the meantime, since there are no other hands up and nobody in the request finance, is there anything that you would like to uh, bring before us in terms of the uh, economic situation and the sanctions situation? Finance, can you hear me? I think finance is in a co-host glitch. Uh, the Twitter space hasn't been very pleasant today, to say the least. And we have a, a usual problem with Twitter on top of that. Um, we're not listed on a live Twitter spaces search bar. I believe this is connected with the connection disconnection issues that we're having today as well. So Twitter is doing the regular Twitter stuff on Fort. Finance, are you back? Can you I am us? back and can hear. Um, while while I was busy uh, being um, disconnected by Twitter, uh, I received a question from a listener, which with Walter here you can hopefully answer, which is how are we doing and how much more is needed to finish the current push for tourniquet. Great question. Question. We're actually, uh, we're not there yet, but we are over 80%. Uh, I will ask Alex to update us. Uh, we, we are almost there, but not there yet. So this should be like the final push for today. And we should, should, uh, <laughs> we should actually be able to finish it by the end of the day, I hope. So again, uh, spread the word. The link is here in the nest. It's, uh, it's a good cause because every single dollar that goes into that is help, helpful and helps to literally save a human life. We are pretty much there. Uh, just, uh, I believe, less than three grand is left basically to, to finish this 
current uh, fundraising event. And again, we are fundraising for 1,000 combat application tourniquets for Ukrainian civilians, for Ukrainian defenders. And uh, we are almost there. So please contribute, please donate. If you have already contributed, donated, or if you are unable to do so, it's understandable. But uh, every you know bit of help makes makes it possible. So spread the word, share, retweet, tell your friends, rally. Overall, convey the message. The war is is far from over. The genocide continues. The Russians are pushing in. They're still having an upper hand, a significant upper hand in the amount of heavy weapons. They're throwing literally everything that they have onto Ukrainians, onto Ukrainian cities. Kharkiv is being bombed every single evening. Like on the schedule, uh, other Ukrainian cities in the east are literally being leveled down. Lysychansk has been completely destroyed. Severodonetsk has been completely destroyed. Other cities are not existent even anymore, like Volnovakha. This is what Russians do. They just gradually level everything down with complete disregard for civilian human life. And uh, this is the harsh reality. It's not stopping. And uh, on our end, we are trying to help as much as we can. Right now, we're essentially fundraising for this 1,000 combat tourniquets, combat application tourniquets, and for for everyone who is having a blood-threatening hemorrhage from his hand or leg, any extremity, this simple contraption that costs around $30 is often the difference between life and death. And we can make this difference happen. We can save some life by uh, donating, by contributing, and by just spreading the word. It matters greatly. And so please do it. The link is in the nest. We're almost there. We still need around three, three thousand dollars or so. So it's about 100 tourniquet. Uh, and uh, let's push it. Let's do it today. Today, by the end of the day, let's do it together, and let's spread the word. I think it's a good cause, and uh, basically we have an opportunity, a chance to save some lives together. Thank you, Walter. Nina, your hand is raised. Thank you. I, I would uh, just want to mention to Leith, uh, because he's here for the first time, what uh, uh, Walter Report is about and uh, like uh, uh, collecting money to help people in Ukraine uh, with medical help and uh, all kinds of uh, non, uh, like uh, not no weapons, but uh, what they need for civilians and what they need for uh, anybody who is injured. So it can make a big difference if you spread the word late about this uh, water report. We have uh, had so many uh, excellent experts here speaking about many different topics and uh, also uh, just bring awareness, like spread awareness about Ukraine here and uh, uh, come as often as you can and uh, spread the word to your friends to come here and also to donate to Maria Aiden. And if Walter is still here, if you, Walter is a doctor, uh, so he, he knows about uh, how crucial uh, it can be to get this help to Ukraine when they need it. And they can save lives and, and uh, even like uh, any life you can say is worth doing it. Thank you. Thank you, Nina. Actually, this is like spot on. 
and uh, very, very important words. Uh, specifically, actually, these are the combat medics um, who are who are carrying the burden of of the war. Uh, they're they're doing the God's work. They're saving lives on the front line. They're pulling people out from from the war, saving wounded, uh, basically transporting them and risking their own lives. And they are applying these tourniquets. They have advanced uh, combat medic kits. We also help with that, with those things, with uh, basically equipping combat medics. We had combat medics from hospitalers here on the space, Anna and uh, and Katarina. Uh, they described all the basically ordeals that they have to go through by uh, by providing medical help in a combat zone. And then again, when the tourniquet is applied, when the hemorrhage, severe hemorrhage, is stopped with the help of combat medics, combat evacuation, medical evacuation teams who are risking their lives in the process. People are being evacuated and they're transported to to hospitals in the rear where doctors actually provide help. But we cannot diminish an immense role of combat medics on the front line. And they essentially carry a huge, huge burden of this war. And they're risking their lives literally on the front lines as well to to essentially pull pull bodies, pull people out of the of the of the fire. And save them, and they they need those combat application tourniquets. They need uh, specialized combat medics equipment, and we are trying to help them as well with that. And I think it's a good cost. Cost was, which is worth basically contributing to, and uh, spreading a message about. So please do it, and every little bit of help matters because it's a it's something that it's quite um, heartwarming. Because Ukrainians managed to raise amount enough for four Bayraktar combat drones by donating as little as one dollar or two dollars. Every single little bit of help matters because together it creates and together it makes a dream possible. So in our case, we are trying to make a very little dream, but very significant dream possible. Southern tourniquet, i.e. Southern shaped life. Uh, thank you, Walter. And uh, Leith has done uh, some, like, a first aid. Uh, so, can you just uh, explain what is in this tur? tur- uh, how do you spell it? Tourniquet. Uh, what What are the things there? Thank you. So, if you're referring to individual first aid kit for a soldier, it contains usually two tourniquets because uh, when there is a shrapnel wound or shrapnel is flying, it often hits at least two extremities. So often one tourniquet is not even enough. So individual first aid kit has to contain or has to have two tourniquets, two decent high quality tourniquets, like CAT that we are trying to procure or SOF, which is also a good option. Also, it has to have uh, uh, a bandage to stem essentially the bleeding uh, what else? Nasopharyngeal tube with jelly, uh, burn dressing. So these are like basic, basic, very basic essential for essentials for individual first aid kit uh, of an individual soldier or for a civilian who receives help. Also, uh, hemostatic dressing or hemostatic bandage that is also necessary. 
So these are the like the staple uh, the combat medics uh, backpack or his kit is a bit more extensive. It has uh, occlusive patches uh, in case of hemotorax or pardon in case of uh, pneumotorax, uh, specialized needles to relieve pressure, uh, pneumotorax, um, and other stuff. So, but even a basic individual. Uh, with that, I'm going to hand it over to uh, to Walter. And uh, M Mouse is the host of this family, so uh, everybody, please give a Walter report welcome to uh, to our family that uh, that uh, made it from uh, Kherson through Crimea into Russia and then Latvia. Hello. Quite quite a journey. Welcome, M Mouse. Hello. <laughs> Pleased to meet you. Likewise, welcome. To the Hello. Team. Hello. Sergey works much best. Uh, Sergey's English isn't that good, uh, so uh, Battle Moose said we could speak in in um, Ukrainian. Is that right? Correct. Будь ласка на українському, якщо можна. Звичайно, ми будемо говорити по українськи. Єдине, що я вас попрошу, не говоріть дуже довгими фразами. В плані два, три, чотири, ну п'ять речень. Тому що якщо ми говоримо довго, тоді трохи втрачається контекст при перекладі. Ви говорите, робите паузу, і ми перекладаємо. Раз. Окей. Я зрозумів так. All right, so we're gonna do a translation in the process. Uh, Sergei will uh, will uh, will tell us his story and story of his family that had to evacuate from her son from Russian occupation. All right, back to you, Amos. Як можна до вас звертатися? Walter. Окей. Мене звати Сергій. І моя жінка Катерина ми з Херсону. So Сергій and his wife are from Херсон. Розповідати про себе, так? Ну скажіть, по-перше, як що ви робили, може, в Херсоні в двох словах, і як вас застала як вас застало 24-те число. So I'm asking, what is Sergei's background? What did he do in Kherson? And what happened on the 24th, where the war got him? Зараз моя жінка розкаже. Ми були у ліжку. Доброго дня. Ми були у ліжку, спали ще, коли почули вибух. Ми спершу не зрозуміли, що це таке сталося. У нас була паніка. Так, ми дуже були налякані, і це застало нас зненацька. Почав дзвонити телефон, і ми зрозуміли, що почалась війна. Були дуже жорстокі вибухи біля Чорнобаєвки. Це 8 кілометрів. Від Херсону аеродром. Воєнна база там була. Дякую. So uh, the war caught him uh, by surprise. Obviously they were sleeping in the morning in their bed. They didn't understand what happened because there were massive explosions uh, nearby and they were scared and the war started essentially in the morning on the 24th and explosions, massive explosions were were happening 
eight kilometers, just, uh, you know, five miles away from them, from Kherson on Chernobyevka military airfield as the Russians invade. Потім ми почали думати, що робити. Нам люди рекомендували виїжджати, але ми щось не вірили в це. Почали дзвонити і шукати відповіді, що робити далі. So they, they started to, to figure out what to do next. Uh, they were advised by their friends and other people to essentially to, to leave Kherson and to evacuate, but they started to make calls and figure out what to do next. Uh, потім я вирішив піти uh, до воєнкомату і взяти якесь, uh, uh, якусь зброю uh, і хотів захищати місто. Але вже воєнкомат весь виїхав, і після обіду а, війська окупантів були вже поблизу міста, і почалися великі бої. Ми сховалися в підвалі і сиділи там, а, чекали якоїсь інформації. So Сергій tried to get weapons and tried to defend the city. He went to military recruitment office, like slash small military base, mostly military recruitment office. But at that point, even right away, essentially, they evacuated already because Russians, Russian invaders managed to almost reach the city and the battle was raging nearby, already close to the city. And they essentially couldn't get the weapons so he couldn't do it so um they went with his he went with his family to the basement and uh, basically took cover наші воєнні захищали наше місто але були великі втрати тому що сили були нерівні і російські війська зайшли вже десь біля обіду вже були в Херсоні Багато хлопців робили коктейлі молотів і теж захищали Херсон, але їх розстріляли з танків. Це було дуже жахливе видовище. Багато людей, багато людей вийшло захищати місто, але їх вже нема в живих. So, unfortunately, a lot of, first of all, a lot of people went into the streets, a lot of citizens from Херсон, civilians went in into the streets to defend the city they were willing to do so but uh, the forces were the force was unfortunately russian invaders had the upper hand they had a way bigger force and the russians already were in the city outskirts by by the mid midday or closer to the evening they were pushing into the outskirts of kherson city a lot of a lot of guys a lot of um, civilians went into the streets they started